0: Today, we have a true hero in the vehicle with us. Welcome to More Than Numbers Enneagram for Business. I'm your host, Keanu Trujillo. Remember, our Thursday episodes are like going for a ride together. I'm driving, our guest is riding shotgun, and you're riding along listening in as we have a conversation. If you wanna share in the conversation, please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. He began his career graduating from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 2010, becoming a commissioned officer in the United States Army. He deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. Upon returning home from deployment, he was selected to serve as a civil affairs officer in Special Forces. He then deployed to Jordan and Lebanon in 2015, 2016, and 2017, In 2018 and 2019, he served as Special Operations Team Leader for cross-functional Team Manbij in Syria in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. On January 16, 2019, while conducting a mission in Syria, he was severely wounded by an ISIS suicide bomber. The bombing killed four of his teammates and left him blind, amongst other serious wounds. He would proceed to undergo 22 surgeries over 24 months to overcome the possibility of death and begin recovery but he would recover and continue to serve on active duty and plans to continue to serve as an officer until he is no longer able. It is with the utmost respect and honor that I introduce you to United States Army Major Jonathan Turnbull. What a story! And I cannot wait to hear even more and get to know you even more, John. Tell us a little bit about who you are as we get started.
1: I'm Major Jonathan Turnbull, uh, still active duty, First Special Forces Command. Graduated from a little town up in northern Michigan called Gaylord in 2005 from high school. Attended the United States Military Academy at West Point. And probably the uh, our Navy listeners, I said the United States Military Academy. Army beat Navy football. Graduated in 2010 uh, with the bachelor's degree in map making. Became an armor officer, second lieutenant. Went and did some training. Ended up uh, reporting to the 3rd Infantry Division for my first assignment. Uh, I was there for about three years. During the three years, uh, my cavalry squadron got to spend nine months in Afghanistan in the Northern, in the RC Regional Command North, Northern Province, a place called Kunduz. Um, Then from there, I saw the most amazing things happen. Uh, Soldiers came in that rather than focusing on finding the Taliban and getting removing uh, their scourge from the earth, these guys, their focus was still on impacting the environment, um, making sure enemies of the United States, enemies of freedom, were not able to um, operate unhindered, but their focus was on the people rather than the things I was used to, you know, when you see somebody being like, hey, do you know, is there any Taliban around? And go to the next one. These guys didn't. They went in there and they're like, hey, can you tell me, um, do you have clean drinking water? How's your food? Is it good? How's your health? They would see children. They would ask the best questions ever. And I loved it. Um, They'd be like, what grade are you in in school and whatever. And they would be speaking Pashto or Dari or they'd speak whichever. I mean, whatever language that um, children spoke and these are Americans that are doing it and uh, they would always hand them like something like a backpack uh, you know a roll of string or um, a pen or pencil paper fun things but they also did book drives where they had school books for kids they went out and did a lot of infrastructure projects Um, I helped them as a squadron or as S9, so our S9s are like civil liaison, civil military operation coordinator, helped them with uh, building the Kunduz hospital in RC North in the city of Kunduz. They funded it and they got all the contracts. We also built roads to the hospital. Um, I mean, there were roads, but we paved them so anybody could get to the hospital that needed to get there. You know, less uh, impediment. Which is ironic now that I live in Michigan, our roads are bad. But um, did a lot of road projects. But I saw these guys, They uh, and one quick tidbit and story for these guys, um, I was there for six months working on putting a road and paving it and getting it all set up to one of our combat outposts um, on the northern border called Shere Khan uh, that recently fell to the Taliban um, a few months ago, unfortunately. But uh, I'd spent six months trying to get bids from local contractors um, on how much it would cost to that, would, and then also getting signatures from the local uh, administrators, magistrates, governors, mayors, whatnot. Everybody that was involved in it, you know, you know cross our T's, dot our I's. I've been working on it for six months and this team, special operations team showed up, the guys that deal with people and they're like, what are you working on? And I was like, I'm trying to work on this road guys. And it, it's killing me. Like I can't, you know, making no headway. I've been doing it for six months. Can't get the right signatures, can't get the right bids. Like, I'm stuck on it. And they're like, can we take over? And so I was like, yeah, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, I, like, I was nowhere six months into it. Three days, they had bids. They had awarded a bid. They had all the signatures needed. And work had begun on this new road in three wow. days. I've been working on this for six months. So, like, sitting there, I was like, I want to be one of these guys. And um, the one of the guys uh, later became... Is still a very, very good friend. We'll call him Tim. Tim came in and sat down with me uh, at one point and was just like, What's going on? And I was a first lieutenant then. I've been in the Army for about 18 months, living the dream. Um, was a platoon leader in combat and now I was uh, in, on squadron staff doing just amazing things. So I was like, I want to be you when I grow up. So he's like, That's easy. He's like, I'm a civil affairs uh, soldier. It's part of special operations. It's this new, like, not a new branch, but kind of a new field, a new focus that we're going to special operations. It's like, put in a packet, I'll sponsor you uh, to kind of be like, you know, help shoo you in, and we'll see where we go from there. So I came back from Afghanistan after nine months uh, with this drive to be something better than what I was. I want to take the next step. I mean, everybody in the Army, you want to be special operations, you want to be special forces or... Any of the other elite tiers yeah. and so i got back went to selection and from what i recall some of the best times of my life um just doing just that like assess an individual while talking to them determine whether or not they're somebody you'd want to work with and get you know your buy-in so they trust you they, that you're somebody they want to work with and what have you i'm just all about the people business um after i think it was a six-week selection i was I praise God I was selected for civil affairs to become a civil affairs officer, spent six months in language, then went through additional like culture classes and, and graduated, went to my unit, was the 96th Civil Affairs Battalion, um, met my company commander, a young major, shook his hand, he, he took me down to my team room, walked into my team room, and Lo and behold, who's sitting there in the team sergeant seat, but that Tim that I spoke about from Afghanistan. And he's like, Johnny Turnbull, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm your team sergeant, man. I'm like, man, it's a small world when you know, we meet in Afghanistan. You impress me so much that I want to become, you know, going to the same branch as you. And then I show up and we're working on the same team. Immediately, I got pinged for a mission in Jordan, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, Loved working there, uh, worked out of the embassy uh, in Amman, Jordan, for six months. Focus, uh, defeat ISIS, and make sure that the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, the, the Jordanian Armed Forces and the Jorsoth, Jordanian Special Operation Forces are fully equipped and trained in order to defeat um, any threats coming into them, uh, like countering violent extremist organizations. Uh, and, I had a simple job, because my job was the people, so getting to know the people, and um, did the same things that Tim and his team did in Afghanistan. We'd sit down, we talk to kids, like, how was school going for you guys? Fun. You guys have everything you need? Yep. At home, do you drink your water? Yep. Is the electricity stay on all day? Do you have air conditioning? Because we knew that if any of these were no, like, we don't have clean drinking water. our drink Our water smells like crap. That's an easy vulnerability that can be exploited by um, a violent extremist organization. Um, They can come and be like, here's a bottle of water. Uh, Just, you know, if we ever need help, we need a place to lay low. You know, you help us. We help you. It's all good. Wow. So we were able to evaluate um, a lot of the areas and help the Kingdom of Jordan, or, yeah, the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, while that, you know, to kind of uh, wedge away from, any extremist organizations having an ability to get a, a foothold there, primarily looking at like ISIS coming in because ISIS was really big at this time. So we were there for six months, uh, a lot of good laughs, a lot of good lessons learned, came back home from our success working there in Jordan. We had area of battle space, AOB, commander of so Special Forces Command, uh, requested that my team return to Jordan uh, two years later to keep doing the same thing. So I went back again in 2015 to Jordan, working out of the embassy. And this time, I was a different capacity. Um, I was more of a staffer, more or less civilian out of the embassy as a coordinator, a civil military coordinator for the USAID, so United States Aid and International Development Agency. So I was that talking piece, um, that mouthpiece for the military to the State Department. The State Department would tell me what to do and I go and talk to the military. did that for six months. Had the, the teams on the ground there do it, and they're evaluating uh, civil vulnerabilities, talking to children, talking to people. So it was cool. I felt like I was doing a lot of good things. Um, life was going really grand. I uh, came back to Fort Bragg after a six-month deployment, and almost immediately got pinged again for another deployment. This time with uh, with First Special Forces Command. Traditionally, we would have we had a two-to-one dwell, so every day, you know, every night my head was on a pillow and on deployment, I had two nights for head on my pillow in the United States. Um, so after a six-month deployment, I typically had uh, about a year until I deployed again. So one year after that, uh, this was uh, around September 2018, I left again with the 1st Special Forces Command with one of their special operation teams, went to Erbil, Iraq, and uh, was our uh, staging, our headquarters was located. I worked for two weeks as a civil uh, civil affairs liaison. Um, so everything that the special forces guys were doing in country, um, they would go and they do a mission and, they, and then I would brief on the mission. You know, They talk about their success and I would brief the impact on the civil infrastructure, impact on the people, impact just in the civil domain. And um, two weeks was running, running with that really well. Um, Loved Erbil. It was my first time in Iraq, and I mean, all everybody, you know, a lot of military guys that I'd been with had been in Iraq, and I heard the tales about uh, Kirkuk or Fallujah and Baghdad, how bad it was. And here I was in Erbil, um, driving around in a Toyota Hilux, not up armored. Um, I carried my pistol with me, but beyond that, I didn't have a rifle. I didn't have armor. I just drove. i drive downtown uh, for a meeting. I'd go meet with an uh, uh, NGO, so non-governmental organization, like a nonprofit organization. Go meet with them at a restaurant. We'd sit down. We'd eat, have dinner, talk, uh, have like a glass of wine or whatnot, and then I would drive back to the American base. No threat of IEDs. A uh, very, very minimal threat of uh, insurgents or anything. There it was, it was beautiful. Uh, after two weeks. I was briefing the commander who was kind of in charge of the overall fight for special operations in Syria. And he stopped me halfway through. and like, John, I got to talk to you. And I was like, yes, sir. What's up? He's like, I need somebody with a civil, you know, civil military, civil affairs mindset to act as a team leader for one of my teams in Syria to report directly to me. We're going to focus on the mission. We had a guy he got sick or Uh, injured or something happened to him. He had to be pulled out. So we need somebody to replace him. He's like, can you go? And I was like, yes, sir. So that night, jumped on a a bird helicopter and flew from Erbil, Iraq to one of the forward staging bases inside Syria, met a bunch of people there to kind of learn what my roles and responsibilities were going to be. Had the team, the special forces team that I was meeting up with, drove to this forward base Picked me up, jumped in their car, threw my equipment in, and different kind of car. I mean, like, same uh, civilian vehicle, but it's all up armored. And this time we are wearing um, body armor, carrying our rifles, helmets, and everything. Drove to a little town called Manbij um, on the Western, the only Western controlled or the only territory controlled by the coalition west of the Euphrates River. Made to Manbij. Um, linked up with a team. We, I was a team leader for a cross-functional team. I was a civil affairs officer. I had a couple special forces soldiers on my team and then a couple uh, military information science officer soldiers or psychological operations soldiers on my team, PSYOPs. So these three were um, three different areas focused on the civil realm, so my, which was my area of expertise, uh, Getting to know the people and marketing—that was the psychological operations guys' jobs—and training of local personnel and that was special forces mission. So it put us together, and it was supposed to be a perfect team. And I thought it was great. I arrived in Syria around September of 2018, and I was supposed to be back home with, with my wife and my son on um, January 15th of 2019. And January, around January 10th or so, um, we had done such remarkable things that uh, I didn't want to leave. I was really happy and impressed by what my team was accomplishing. Little tidbits uh, we had restored power to all of Northeast Syria, um, giving power to about 450,000 people, uh, Turkey and Iraq as well. We had opened up schools in our region, and it was spreading like wildfire throughout Northeast Syria for girls to return to school after a seven-year prohibition set by ISIS. Mm -hmm. Um, And still to this day, in talking with people there, uh, there are 4,000 girls that still attend school in Manbij, um, and it's been unhindered by anybody. Nobody's gone in there and tried to stop them. So I praise God for that. And then we uh, rebuilt the local hospital to um, really bolstering their ability to take on um, major incidents like their trauma ward, um, trauma surgery surgeons uh, gave them a bunch of equipment, uh, rebuilt an entire floor and uh, provided them with a lot of training from American doctors, came out and trained them, gave them a lot of equipment such as ambulances. There were no ambulances in the entire province. You had to, you know, jump in the back of a pickup truck if you're sick, or even worse, you think about a young pregnant lady uh, getting ready to give birth. She would have to get in a vehicle, bed of a pickup truck, down dirty roads. You get there and um, hope that there's a room available. Well, we made extra rooms for um, the OBGYN department there. I gave them about 10 or 15 ultrasound machines taught them how to use them. All this being said, the power being turned on, girls going back to school, the hospital being bolstered. We restored a uh, well, power, but not really power, not electrical power, but power legitimacy to the local government, an organization known as the civil man, Civil administration of Manbij, the CAM. We bolstered up their influence with the population and uh, working with their police, working with the military there, um, made it so the people could rely on them for things rather than ISIS, who was still pretty influential in the area. Um, so we delegitimized ISIS by legitimizing the uh, proper government. And all that, once again, being said, to say that our um, our success was actually our one of our big was led to our downfall. We were so successful at delegitimizing ISIS that um, there were multiple attacks on our team trying to get us to stop small minor things, uh, you know, uh, you know, pray and spray where that, you know, a few pop shots here, there, um, attempts to set off IEDs, but uh, all of it was not for naught. I mean, it was all very serious, but um, had very minimal impact on us. We kept pushing forward, pushing forward, pushing forward, providing freedom, encouraging it and whatnot, until on January 16th. So step back two seconds. Uh, January 15th, as I said, was the day I was supposed to go home. Um, I was offered to extend. They offered me the extension. I very happily took it so I could stay with my team, stay with my soldiers, uh, my linguist, finish the job, um, do a real good handover with the next team leader to come in. So that was January 15th. Remember, I think it was on January 15th I, or 14th I texted my wife. I was like, hey honey, I want to let you know. Um, I've been extended for a couple months plan on me being home not tomorrow, but plan on me being home in like April. And uh, all the you know stuff that that raised was interesting. I'll always have fallout for a minute because uh, that night then I sent her another text. I said, hey babe, Isis, We've identified where ISIS has moved into the area. We know where they're at. Tomorrow morning, I have to go into the city. I'm gonna set up some security cameras, real easy stuff. Um, Don't worry, everything will be okay. God's got this, God's taking care of this. We're going to do everything we can to help make sure that people are safe and love you. And I'll talk to you when I'm done with my mission. So her that January 15th, before I went to bed, Woke up in the morning, went on my mission. It was a overly successful mission. Literally set up uh, security cameras to kind of identify the you know pattern of life and stuff. And at the very end of it, it was twelve o'clock Syrian time, so approximately it was at six o'clock, six fifteen Eastern Standard Time, so here in the states. Uh, a we finished up our mission. We gathered around our vehicles. We kind of did like a hands in the middle yay we won everything's going good um life is good and right before we all ran back to our vehicles to go back to our thing a an individual had the this perfect timing perfect uh, like everything worked out for him to walk right up to our group and um it was a, it was a suicide bomber he detonated his suicide vest Uh, standing next to two of my soldiers, killing them instantly. Um, I was thrown to the ground and unconscious, um, torn up real bad. Uh, The overall casualties for the day, uh, four Americans lost their lives, Uh, three Americans, American soldiers. um, Well, two were sailors, one was a soldier. The soldier was Chief John Farmer, the two Navy individuals I had with me was Chief Petty Officer Shannon Kent and Mr. Petty Officer Scott Wirtz. And the fourth American killed was my linguist. Her name was Gadir Tahir. Um, We call her Jasmine. Uh, So that day, four Americans lost their lives. Uh, There were seven seven total Americans that were on the mission. Um, Myself and then the other two Americans were severely wounded. The extent of my wounds were... um, my right eye was completely removed from the from my body. My left eye was punctured, and I would lose eyesight um, a few months well, about a month later, completely from that. Had multiple shrapnel injuries to my torso, my abdomen, and uh, they're just the, my ears were messed up. Just a whole bunch. It just it was it was a bad day. Uh, my other two guys, a uh, guy by the name of Joe, and a guy by the name of Devin, were. Uh, severely wounded as well they they also had pretty bad injuries but their injuries were uh, mine were might have been worse physically because i was i was only about 10 feet away from the suicide bomber and they were a little further away but their injuries they had um, a different kind of injury this emotional trauma because when they got up and they were like holy crap what happened they saw all of us laying down and then their job switched immediately to Uh, triage who was alive and uh, who wasn't. They saw me. I was covered in gore. Um, I still have my hat that I was wearing that day. It is still filthy from it. But they looked at me and said, "Turmel's dead. There's no way he's alive. Um, I like using the words 0% chance. Um, So when you say no way, um, I'm going 0% chance. I was just covered in gore, covered in yuck. they started going around assessing, checking pulses on other their soldiers that were killed. Uh, two of my people were viscerated um, in half from the explosion. Gadir was torn apart as well. Uh, Jasmine, and they said while they were moving around and they were seeing stuff, uh, they said some, a miracle happened. I started kicking my feet, and I always get made fun of for having like restless leg syndrome. I'll kick my foot a lot. Granted, I put my Fitbit on my foot now, so I get those steps in, but. Uh, <laughs> But I uh, had the restless leg syndrome, so I started start taking my feet for whatever reason. And the guys are like, how is Turnbull alive? So, but whatever, Turnbull's alive. So they grabbed me and carried me over to the ambulance. Um, while I was being dragged away, I was told that I'd grabbed a hold of Jasmine's hand and um, she had fallen right next to me and I was tra- I was dragging her behind me and I had to like they had to peel my fingers away from her hand to let her drop um, her hand drop and they said that was one of the worst things they ever did because when it dropped they saw her I mean she was there for a minute but then she was gone um so it was a very tragic moment so this is the things that those guys had to deal with that tragedy yeah. um but from there Went to the uh, local hospital. So the hospital that I spoke about earlier, uh, we call it Musteshva Farat, Arabic, Musteshva is Arabic for hospital. Farat is Arabic for Euphrates. So the Euphrates Hospital, which is the uh, community hospital in Manbij, rebuilt the whole OBGYN, gave them a, um, also had to rebuild, like I said, I did a trauma room for surgery. Mm. A surgical room paid for it with a bunch of surgical equipment. I was in that room. Um, They... To my frustration, cut my clothes off of me to assess the damages. Um, I say frustration because those are my favorite clothes. I was wearing my lucky pants. and pants are so, uh, I guess not too lucky, but they were a great pair of jeans. They fit right, faded just perfectly, um, loved them, and they cut them off of me, so I'll never get those back. But uh, the amazing things that God does, um, so a few months prior to that, I was, I was looking around and I like hospitals because, I mean, you're a people person. Hospitals, I mean, people need hospitals. Um, I mean, I joined the military to help people, yeah. so people that need help, it's, you know, what kind of place would that be where people that need help all get together seeking help? Hospital's perfect one, so I started going to the hospital, fell in love with the staff. Uh, the main person there was a lady by the name of Dr. Reem. so Dr. Reem introduced me, and did the the same thing I always do. What are your, you know, what are your vulnerabilities? What do you need fixed? How can I help? And she was, she told me, well, we don't really have an OBGYN department because we don't have ultrasound machines. Okay, well, that's easy. I can find ultrasound machines of the state department, USAID. They're amazing. They will help out with that. And they did. And then come to find out they only had, so they had two surgery rooms for general surgery, all the way to very, acute surgery, and one of them was in need of repair. Didn't have chairs, didn't have equipment, didn't have anything. So I started working with USAID to get it funded, um, and it cost, I wanna say it cost, the overall, the whole project was about a quarter of a million dollars, $250,000. Very hard to push that amount of money around. Um, I was able to buy ultrasound machines, buy some equipment, but I couldn't get this surgery room working until one day, Um, I remember the day, it was uh, in the end of October, early November. The ISIS, like I said, they were trying to get us, they set up IEDs. They detonated an IED on one of our convoys, and it had killed instantly a Syrian Democratic force, so an SDF soldier, and wounded um, the TC, so the truck commander, so the guy on the passenger side, wounded him. We were hosting that day a Brigadier General by the name of Pond from the uh, from the British Army. Um, General Pond was a liaison, a just incredible individual. So he's coming, checking out everything we're doing. Um, I heard of this IED attack and I was like, okay, okay, so one person was injured? Yes, I want to see that person, um, or if not see the person, but I want to help out any way I can. So we went straight to the hospital, went in through the doors, um, Dr. Reem, the wonderful uh, hospital administrator, came. We went up to the surgery room and all the, the family were in there and they're just wailing, um, crying, grieving. So I knew instantly what had happened that this uh, very, very unfortunately um, the soldier passed. And Dr. Reem grabbed me and was like, John, I want to tell you why the soldier is dead. He died because we were, we were having a surgery in the surgery room. And he had to wait for the surgery to be finished because they couldn't just stop um, and work on him. And we couldn't put him into the other surgery room because it's not updated. So in the time it took for them to clear out the surgery room and move him in there, he had expired and he'd passed away. And she was like, just crying, like sobbing on my shoulders. I was like hugging her, telling her it'd be okay that we get it fixed. And that general, and the reason I said his name because I, he, will, he will live in eternity, um, for the amazing thing that he did the next moment he showed me and you, you talk about leadership he showed me what leadership was he stood kind of stood back and this is a general a, a foreign general at that so somebody that um, i believe he was a sir too so he's a knight pretty high to do on the you know the british system but he didn't interrupt he didn't interject he didn't do anything he listened and when there's a pause he's like he's like captain turnbull yes sir he's like Get me a piece of paper and a pen. He sat down and wrote a note to the family, um, and then Jasmine is right next to me, and he's like, Jasmine, can you translate this into Arabic for me? Um, so she took it, and I remember her crying while she translated it, and she was like, that was probably one of the most amazing, you know, heartfelt, sincerest, I'm sorry's, but thank you for, you know, your sacrifice, notes that she's like, I've ever seen. And he didn't just like fold it up and be like, make sure the family gets this. He's like, show me the family. Yeah. So we, we marched down to the um, the waiting room and here's the family just in grief and they just lost their loved one. And General Powell's like, who's the mother? So, uh, I don't know, I'm not, uh, sorry. I'm trying to think of the Arabic words. My Arabic's not very good, but who's the mom? So we translated it. Uh, uh, Elderly lady, I mean, young, we'll go with young lady because it makes ladies feel good. Um, a young lady stepped forward and was like, I was his mother. And he's like, I'm sorry. And Gadir or Jasmine was translating all this. And he's, I remember being like, I'm so sorry. And this guy is a pretty big guy. Um, looks like a football player. His shoulders you know, are huge. His biceps are like the size of my legs. But so this really big guy bent over and just embraced the mother. Um, and she was a, a tiny lady, she might've been five foot, but just hugged her and picked her up and just like squeezing her and, it's like, and she was crying and the family's all crying and he was crying. And he's like, there's nothing that can be done to right this wrong until we, he's like, we're going to get after it, we will kill ISIS. But he's like, but let me tell you something. I'm going to do something right here and right now to honor your son. And he gave her the, the letter he said, "I'm paying like out of my personal pocket. I'm going to pay to have the surgery room done." Wow. Okay. And so this general, um, he funded the surgery room. All that being said, this is the same surgery room that, about three months later, I'm laying in under the you know the operating table, getting chunks of shrapnel pulled out, my face is reassembled, and um, I was made so that I could live. But uh, wow. I'm going to pause for just a moment and see if you had any questions. But I'm going to unfortunately have to run. Yeah. Well, in a few minutes, my son has soccer.
0: Well, you know, it's it has been honestly awesome, Major, just to sit here and and listen to your story and hear your story. And you know, the listeners on my podcast know that I do love to talk, but I've just been having a great time listening and hearing your story, and especially knowing and intentionally seeking God in what happened right? You creating that room or being a part of all of the services that led to that room being created. And then that room being instrumental in saving your life and being able to be here again today. And so two things I wanted to touch on, because I know that we're getting up on our time. The first one is you still continue to serve. You're still actively serving. And I was even surprised to find that you're still serving because most that experience, even a fraction of what you've experienced, that's enough to step away. So one, I want to know why you continue to serve. And then two, I think that your voice being someone that served being someone that is a leader at a very high level, I think more of our nation needs to hear from people like you right now, given what's happening in Afghanistan, given the policy, given all of it. So one, I want to hear why you still continue to serve and where that comes from. And then two, your encouragement to the nation or to people listening after what's going on right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so why I continue to serve, I love um, I love America. Um, I love the ideals that we were founded on, our uh, Judeo-Christian principles, the the idea of freedom. I mean, we we all know the phrase "free." You know, freedom isn't free, and I laugh at it because I'm like, well, it is the first four letters of the word freedom. But um, I love. I know the sacrifices that our guys have made. I mean, I was there. I saw, I mean, four of my teammates give pay the ultimate sacrifice, but um, why I continue to serve is to, I love my job to continue to mentor, train, mentor, and inspire other individuals to understand the things that I'd worked on. Um, every action, I mean, the, your uh, idea that every action has a counter, um, you know, opposite, an opposite and equal reaction. Sorry, yes, my sir. physics is really rusty. Yes, sir. It's fine. But, um, <laughs> Everything we do, there's third order effects to it. I mean, we look at what what our strategy has been in the past with war, uh, Vietnam, um, all the way through enduring freedom, Iraqi freedom, you know, find the bad guy, engage them, destroy them, and that's it, right? Yay, winning. Well, I mean, we've been at war for 20 years now, and that really hasn't been the win that we're that we're thinking of. Like, yes, nobody can stand toe to toe with us. Um like that like the saying in Iron Memories like nobody can go toe to toe with me on my best day. Well <laughs> that's that's American forces, um, mm-hmm. as proven by something something like Afghanistan, um, with what's going on. The Taliban, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna be frank as it can be, Taliban are scared of us. They refused they refused to show themselves, to poke their head out of their foxholes, to cross the border from um, whichever country they were in, not saying only Pakistan, but Pakistan. Um, they refused to do any of that because we're awesome. And America is great at it. We're great at engaging and destroying our enemies or, and our enemies, enemies of freedom, liberty, justice. Yes. And we're phenomenal at it. And it's as shown in Afghanistan. When did the Taliban stick their head out of their holes and kind of like stand out like, ha, 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 was after we started to withdraw. And we're like, all right, well, we're done. Um, so, my encouragement is to the American people, don't this isn't, I want it to not be, I love, like I said, I'm a hist, uh, student of history. Don't want this to be a Vietnam where, you know, people are more or less ashamed of what happened. Um, I mean, the people that we put into place of power, the president, vice president, second speaker of the House, all them, congressmen, senators, they, we put them into power. So their job is to make these decisions. They, you know, they get their, their I couldn't imagine their fire hose that they get um, from just each briefing each meeting. They get so much information that they have to put it all together and have a course of action afterwards. And I mean, I've done it with small, like small operations, um, military operations, but, you know, they take all of them. And it's not just like Afghanistan into account. When President Biden was being told, I mean, he was probably being briefed on China. Iraq, uh, Russia, and Iran, all working inside of Afghanistan or whatnot. So he's got these big movements. I mean, he's not playing checkers. He's playing chess. Um, So he makes a decision. So American people, I want to encourage you, you know, stand up, stand up for what's right. If you think that there was a bad call, if you think that something could have been done differently, and I hate to say it always can be done differently, but if you think, think of it, don't just be like, you know. Forget this guy. He's an idiot. I mean, that's an, that's like an easy easy way out, right? You know, actually think about it. Come up with what what is your solution, um, and then when you say this guy's an idiot, be like, hey, have you thought about you know, this is what happened. This is what we want to see happen, and here's how you bridge that gap. This was this is my recommendation. Always provide a recommendation, and present that to your congressman, to your senators. They have phone numbers, they have emails, call them. Right. Um, I know my congressman, I've called his office a couple of times over the past few weeks. I haven't talked to him directly, but i talked to his staff. And when they say, I will give this to the congressman, I don't, I mean, I trust them because yes. that's what the job is, but also I trust them to do that. So I encourage the American people, remember we have, we are the people, we the people. So all yes. that being said, there, I mean, whether it's the right way, everybody's out there. Everybody has their talking heads. Everybody wants to, you know, has their opinion. Um, my opinion with Afghanistan is it's simple. And if I were friends with President Biden, I would let him know there's always there's only one answer to withdraw, and it's very hard. Uh, but look at historical examples of war. When do you withdraw from war? Um, to me, it's to me it seems simple. Once we've won, and there is, you know, clearly defined winning and losing. Um, but there like the example of Vietnam, the example of Korea, the example of World War II. Well, look at Korea and World War II, where, you know, there was a white flag raised, and congratulations, coalition, we won, yay! Um, we're still in Germany, we still have bases there. I've been there; they're beautiful. We're still in South Korea. Um, what happened in Vietnam? We just we said, all right, enough's enough. We packed up and we left. Um, I mean, everybody is referring to uh, evacuation of uh, Kabul as kind of the Saigon. And yes, and that it scares me, but I encourage American people. I mean, there's there's a way that we can properly withdraw where the world is a better place for not just the United States, but the world is a better place. And that's once we've won. So I, I encourage yeah. that. And what's, what's winning look like? Like when the people, um we've been talking about people the whole time. Um, when you look at the people, and the people are like, "We've got this. We're yes. strong. We're you know, mighty, or what have you. We can govern ourselves. We can secure ourselves. We're good." and you know, once they say, "Thank you, you know, thank you for being here. We love you. You can now go." Then, and then we can pack up, and you know, we board our board our uh, commercial flights out of there, and. I mean, I only say commercial because then, then you know it's secure and safe, and right. life is good. Um, our Marines that are there that were just recently killed, I just I ask that everybody prays for their families. Um, I've gone through it, and I stay in touch with every single one of our Gold Star families that from my team. But also remember the, the soldiers and sailors that were wounded. Hmm. They're right now struggling for their lives in Longstuhl um, Regional LRMC, Regional Medical Center um, in Germany, and they will be soon moving to uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, where they will have been there. They will get the best treatment you can imagine. The best doctors, the best nonprofits are there to help them um, from, with everything from surgeries to make sure they're taken care of, to putting socks on their feet, and that's my a quick shout out for the Simper Foundation Foundation, the Yellow Ribbon Foundation. You have two great nonprofits that are there in the hospital, holding hands, hugging, kissing families, and just doing amazing things. So, you know, stay strong, market. We just we stay strong. We continue to support justice, liberty, freedom, and we just keep up the fight.
0: What an amazing story and an amazing guest. John continues to train, mentor, and inspire others through giving inspirational speeches to groups and will continue past retirement. It's really amazing to hear his story and to hear his resolve and to still hear that he is still serving our country. As a veteran, I couldn't have John on our podcast fast enough after I heard his story. With everything going on in Afghanistan, the fear, the anger, the frustration, the sadness, I thought it was needed now more than ever to hear directly from one of our heroes who served our country faithfully. I want to encourage you listeners, if it feels too heavy, it's not yours to carry. I felt crushed by the weight of what's going on. As a type 8, I have an innate desire to protect others and for justice, and I feel utterly helpless, which leads to even more frustration. There are things you can do. There are organizations that are helping to evacuate and protect those left behind in Afghanistan. Special shout out and a promotion for Operation Light Shine, an organization that exists to stop human trafficking, sex trafficking, child trafficking. They have directed efforts towards rescuing and supporting those left behind. Please give them a visit and donate at operationlightshine.org or visit the link in the show notes. Until next time, my friends, God bless you, God be with those in Afghanistan, and God bless these United States of America.